the standard Sunday school answer to every single question, and this is a hint for you kids, is maybe you know it. Jesus, God, the Bible. There's many youth Bible studies I led many years ago, and they were being cheeky, I'm sure, but they would just say to every question you would ask, oh, Jesus, God, the Bible. One of them's right. And it bugged me. I'd carefully crafted these, these wonderfully relevant youth talks, which I thought was so good, and they would just say, Jesus, God, the Bible. And I thought, no, that's not what I want you to say. But the more I thought about it, actually, over the years, is that's profoundly the truth. That is the answer I want them to get to every single time. There might be layers to that. And that's the answer to today's passage in Acts 2. Jesus, God, the Bible is still the answer today. Partly why I've called the talk, it's all about Jesus. But I want you to see that. Today, Jesus, God, the Bible is the very best answer. And it's why Peter preaches this particular sermon, because he's all about Jesus, God, and the Bible. And the big idea, and it is clunky, uh, but I think you'll get it as we go along, is that the gospel is an explanation of Jesus to be believed and embraced that creates a new kind of culture. The big idea of this passage is that the gospel is an explanation of Jesus to be believed in and embraced that creates a new kind of culture. And we'll unpack that in two points. You can follow along on the outline from the hub. First point is the gospel is... And the second point, the gospel creates. The gospel is, verses 14 to 41, then the gospel creates, 42 to 47. Now, I get that because the gospel is something. It's the message of Jesus to be declared, believed in, and embraced. And then the gospel does something. It creates a gospel culture where the lordship of Jesus hangs over every individual's life as they serve one another and God, full of love and gratitude from Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The gospel is, the gospel creates. And Peter, with that wonderful Sunday school answer of Jesus, God, the Bible, is going to use the Bible, talking and proving and using many more words than we have here, says Acts 2.40, that it really is all about Jesus. I wonder... Are you all about Jesus today? Do you understand what the gospel is and what the gospel creates? So let's walk through that. First of all, the gospel is an explanation of Jesus. Walk through that phrase in three parts. So verse 14 uh, opens with Peter standing up with the 11. And he raised his voice and he addressed the crowd and says, Fellow Jews, everyone in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. Now, before him are thousands and thousands of Jewish people. Every one of them is amazed and perplexed because in Acts chapter 2, 1 to 13, they've just heard the wonders of God declared in their native language. These are diaspora Jews mostly, those that were not born in Jerusalem, surrounding regions, different languages, and they hear in their native tongue what God's up to. All because the Holy Spirit came down, caused a whole lot of commotion. And Peter gets up and he needs to explain it. They haven't a clue what has just happened. He says, listen carefully. And interestingly, he's not that interested in talking about the Holy Spirit, is he? You'd think, Holy Spirit's just come down. Guys, let me tell you, I've got a dot point systematic theology of the Spirit of God from Genesis 1-1 right until the end of Jesus' life. I need you to, to understand. 
But he doesn't do that. What Peter needs to do is to re-school them in salvation history, which means he's going to talk about Jesus. The point is that these Jewish people need to see Jesus and their history converging at this moment. It's the perception versus reality question. There's a guy called Chris Switz, and he's a leadership guy, and he said, we don't see things as they are, we see things as we are. And then he put this blob on the screen of the book, or a page of the book. What is it? Does anyone know what this blob of black and white mess is? Can you see it? And you can shout it out to me if you can see what... It's a face. Yeah, it's a woman's face. Sorry? A saxophone. When I first saw it, I thought it was someone throwing up a biscuit into their mouth. Um, I'll tell you how I got that later. But it's actually, the, 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 in, the person who drew this, it's the face of a woman. And you may not see that right now. And, and Chris, Chris's point is that we don't see things the way they are. We see things as we are. Think of it like this. All these Jewish people, they're looking at this blob. They're trying to make sense of it. For them, the blob is their history and their writings and the prophets and the law and the messianic hope and the nationality. And they spend all day talking and living and obeying and bringing clarity to this picture. But it's not until Jesus comes along, completing his work on the cross, sending the spirit, they can finally see what it's all about. You see, Jesus is the key to understanding what God is doing in the world through their nation. And they need someone to explain it to them. Because they can't see Jesus as he is unless God awakens them, awakens them through the preaching of his word. You see, just as the Spirit of God has given all the disciples there a new language, Peter now has to use a new language here, filled with gospel words to describe what's going on. So to do that, he draws upon Joel the prophet and two Psalms. We're not Jewish. And so the sharpness of what Peter says is often lost on us as we read through it. But it's important to grasp what Peter's up to and why he uses these two particular passages for a number of reasons. The first one and the big one is that Jesus is fulfilling their Jewish writings. Look at what he says in verse 15 and 16. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. The explanation to the spirit coming to the languages is grounded in Jewish history, not the bottom of a bottle. So he pulls on Joel and the two Psalms of King David to explain that actually this is what God's always been up to. Did you know? God's always about drawing a people to himself through the promise of a messianic king. And the reference to Joel, the first one, it's a long reference and it sounds dramatic, doesn't it? And it is. Joel writes apocalyptically. Trouble is, Joel collapses Jesus' first coming and second coming uh, with a single pen stroke, just like that. He describes a vision for the future where a prophetic community would arise. Which is really unique, isn't it? Because back in the Old Testament, there was a prophet at a time, maybe two. There was the true prophet and lots of false prophets that would come up. But Joel says, actually, team, there's going to be sons 
and daughters and men and women, even those who are servants or really, really old. There's no hindrance from age or occupation in the community that God is creating. It comes to the climax in verse 21. When Joel says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And in the two Psalms, Psalm 16 and Psalm 110, Peter explains how the Messiah won't be held by death. He would rise and be exalted, living, ruling, reigning with God forever. What he does, what Peter does, is say, guys, the Spirit has arrived, as Joel said he would, The Messiah, the one David looked to and wrote about, he's here in Jesus. Which means not only is Jesus the fulfillment of their Jewish writings, he's actually the centre of what God's doing in history. So to build on this new way of understanding, giving them the eyes to see what's going on, Peter points them to Jesus in Acts 2.22. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Do you see the word accredited there? It means to show forth a quality, a qualification, like a graduation certificate. I've got mine on my desk, and it sits there, and it says, I'm accredited through the Australian College of Theology. How do you know that when I say it? I've got the paperwork, I've got the accreditation, I've done the study. You have one, I'm sure. Maybe you, a white card, maybe, or your, your lawyer certificate, or um, the nurse paperwork, or the engineer's degree, or whatever it is. You've got some, some sort of accreditation, I'm sure. Even if you work at Woolworths, they, they try to make you feel good by giving you an accreditation. In interviews, you need to give some sort of qualification. What makes you suitable for this particular role? Where have you studied? What have you done? What's your history? When you visit an accountant or someone, you want to know they're accredited. How many times have people been stung by dodgy people that don't have proper accreditation? For Jesus, his accreditation isn't just sitting in the Jewish writings. It's visibly on display in the miracles and the wonders and the signs which they've all seen and known. They are a way of showing that Jesus is like no other. He's the Son of God himself. But moreover, his accreditation isn't just in what he has done and how he lived. His accreditation is in how he died. I'm limited in my life. If I died, suddenly my degree means nothing. I can't use it. My employer would not get the benefit of it or anything like that. My accreditation's void. My qualifications don't matter. But not Jesus. Accredited, accredited in his life as the only saviour from heaven, the only hope to rescue us, as Joel said. And then accredited in his death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Look at the next two verses in 23 and 24. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Yes, the Jews, they killed Jesus. The Romans, they killed Jesus. And so did God. 
It was deliberate. God had planned this from eternity past. Peter says this not to show us about divine sovereignty, human responsibility. He's not showing us a theological understanding of that necessarily. Clearly, they're compatible. Peter's aiming for their hearts in that statement. He's emphasizing their guilt. You've got to feel that for a minute. If you're a Jew waiting for the Messiah your whole life for generations, and suddenly Peter gets up and says, oh, you killed the Messiah, this is something you never wanted to be accused of. This is huge. You're a Jew. Hold on. I've, I've killed the one that all the prophets and the writings, my whole nation's hopes built upon. I'm responsible for that. And then, like a fire engine, you hear the sirens in the distance and it gets louder and louder coming around the corner just at the right time. Peter says these beautiful, this beautiful phrase, but Jesus is alive. God raised him from the dead. Death cannot keep its cold, ugly hands around him. And team, that's how everything's going to look different. Jesus is not dead. That's how everything's going to change. Jesus is alive. That's what they need to see. Because Jesus, he's still at work. It's why we've called this sermon series, Jesus Builds His Church. No longer with himself on earth, but through the Spirit. Look at verses 33. Maybe not. Um, Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out now what you see and hear, he says. Jesus sends the Spirit in line with the promise of the Jewish writings. Jesus is the one they crucified, as verse 36 says, but the one whom all the threads of hope are actually tied to. Be assured, Peter says, Jesus really, truly is the Lord and Messiah. His point, it's all about Jesus. You need to be all about Jesus. Which means this message of Jesus is to be believed in and embraced. That's the next part. Believed in and embraced. Verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to their heart and said, Peter, brothers, what should we do? Now, if Peter had said, oh, sacrifice six goats, kilo of flour, um, get, get, get the, the, the lamb ready, that sort of thing, they were used to hearing that. That was familiar to them. But that's not what he tells them. He actually tells them they need to repent and turn to God. Verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That promises for you and your kids and their kids and everyone whom God will call. Forgiveness is now found not in what they do, but in what Jesus has done. And like a piece of butter in the frying pan, their sins are melted away because the glory and the grace and forgiveness of God comes through the name of the Lord Jesus, the one Joel pointed to. That name, it's Jesus now. And all they need to do is what Joel said, call on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. Embrace confession. Embrace the baptism as a public sign of now being a Jesus follower. 
So you see, salvation, according to Peter, is both give and take. God takes away their sins and he gives them the spirit. One deals with the past, the other secures life now and long in the future. Which means, the first part, is that the gospel is something to be proclaimed. You don't do the gospel. You don't even live the gospel. Jesus did that. You receive the gospel. And then... Everything else is empowered based on and a result of this gospel, you see. One of my favourite ways to illustrate this comes from someone you've never heard of by the name of Michael Tate. And he says this, Imagine you're in an orchestra and you begin to play. And it sounds terrible. No, you you can play. uh, But the problem is you're out of tune. The problem can't be fixed by simply tuning to each other. You don't just turn to the person next to you and say, oh, Oboist, let me tune my double bass to you and so on and so forth. That doesn't work. Everyone's going to be tuning to something different. What you need to be tuned to is the one pitch, the one sound, the one note. Does anyone know what a typical note that an orchestra is tuned to is, by the way? Middle C? I can't remember actually, so it could be. I think it's I think it's E for an orchestra. Google it later. Um, anyway, they're, they're tuned to the one note, the one pitch. And here's how the gospel comes into it. The gospel doesn't tune us in relation to our problems and surroundings. It retunes us to God. And that's what Peter's doing. Turning God's people, these Jews present at Pentecost, back to God. He wants to tune them into the gospel, what the gospel is. Because then when they see that, confess, believe, the gospel creates something. The gospel creates a new kind of culture. That's our last point for today. The gospel is an explanation of Jesus to be believed and embraced that creates a new kind of culture. What culture? The church culture. We said back in the beginning of our series in Acts, it's It's not really that the church began here. It's more the body of Christ begins here because God's always been about gathering. But it's right to say the church in the New Testament way did begin here. But let me tell you what church isn't first. The church isn't where two or three gather. You know, there's verses in Matthew 18, verse 20. People often quote them and say, oh, when two or three gather, God is with us. Well, that's true, but that has nothing to do with church. Jesus is talking about church discipline not defining what the church is. He says, if there's a relational mess around among you, yes, grab two or three. I'm present in that moment as you sort that out. Church isn't two Christians in a coffee shop reading the Bible. Church isn't downloading a podcast once a week or watching it online or going to a Bible study or listening to Christian music. Church isn't in the same category as a soccer club or a charity or an organisation. They're service providers. They make you feel better. They meet the needs of someone. They look after people. But that's not a church. Bits of those, sure, are involved in a church. And we'll see that in just a moment. But a church was never formed like another organisation. Those things are good and helpful. I am the first to say I love meeting in coffee shops and reading the Bible. I'm the first to say podcasts are wonderful and helpful, and I love watching what other churches do online in this current COVID space. I'm all for meeting together with one other Christian, if that's all you can do. 
So don't hear that they're wrong, bad, terrible. Jesus does not forbid that. But they're not church. Church is not like high school. You go to it for a couple of years and then you're done and move on with the rest of your life. What we see here is a church began when a bunch of convicted people from the Jewish writings realized they sinned against God. They repented, they had faith in Jesus and began to gather and share a common devotion to this Jesus. Jesus loves gatherings. God loves his people together. He made Jesus the head of his people and one day he will gather us all around his throne forever and ever from all tribes and tongues and nations. Which means when the church gathers, it's cracking open the final pages of history, showing off the beauty and value of Jesus and God, his word, his grace, his people around his throne. Imperfectly at times, with sound systems that don't work and things that don't work and sinful lives that all meet together in this hodgepodge of a group of people united by faith in Jesus. Week after week, gathering under his word to hear it preached so the spirit can work, meeting in the week in each other's homes, yes. But the beauty of gathering is exactly where God's bringing the world to. And we get to preview that each week. And you probably don't feel that amazing each week when you come to church. But behind the scenes, God is doing an amazing thing in your life. It began when Jesus saved an individual through repentance and faith, and then he glues them together in community, giving them a whole new culture. And in fact, the word devoted in verse 42 is is another way of saying glued. That's the idea. They were glued to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayer. This is the first evidence of a gospel culture. Gathering together, submitting to the word of God, hearing it taught, praying it, showing it in communion. You hear the word preached, you show it in communion, you pray the word with one another. And there's no set way of doing this. Just principles that each gospel culture should have. That's what we see in the end of Acts. They're devoted. They're glued together for that purpose. And they're visible. Devoted and visible. Church was divisible? (laughs) Visible and devoted to others. Selling possessions, travelling from home to home, enjoying the favour of all people, sharing hospitality with joyful hearts, open fridges, couches ready for someone to sit on. Other people saw them. It was attractive. Did you know the first thing that someone notices about church, and maybe you're new here and you can relate to this and you've not thought about it, but maybe this is true, is not the doctrine, but the relationships. The first thing you notice about a group of people is not what they believe, but how they act. Which is why a gospel culture must come from what the gospel is, so that we act the right way by the grace of God. And too often when people come to hear good news of great joy... Sadly, it's drowned out by trouble and disunity and ugliness among the very people who are trophies of God's grace, which is why when two or three gather, yes, Jesus is present to sort relationships out. And I hope that's not us when we gather. And the way forward, the gospel is, the gospel creates, the way forward for all of this begins in Acts 2 verse 36. 
Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. What do I mean? We're not in the crowd that Peter spoke to originally, are we? We didn't literally murder Jesus like some of them did. But the Old Testament and New Testament witness is this. Let all of Golden Grove know for certainty that God has made Jesus Christ, the Lord and Messiah, who was killed for the sin of Adam all the way to the sin of Luke and everyone in between. Let your heart know this morning that Jesus is Lord, fulfilling the witness of Israel's scripture for you because you are part of the promise of Abraham, of all the nations who can find forgiveness in the name of Jesus. You didn't murder him, but your sin has killed him. You didn't put him on the cross and shout crucify him, but you have lived that way every single day of your life because of the sin from Adam that you inherited that pulsates through your mind and heart and actions every moment of the day. And that's why Jesus died. Which means this verse is just as piercing for the 3,000 that heard it as it should be for you and me today. These words cut their heart. It should cut our hearts too that Jesus, the Messiah, the Lord, died for you, you see? And the call of Peter is the same, that we can stand in the footsteps of the 3,000 that said, what should I do? To which Peter said, repent and believe, so that you too can live as a devoted follower of Jesus. So that you too can live the culture that the, the Spirit creates. And there are slight differences. We don't meet in the temple anymore. We don't necessarily sell our possessions the same way that they did. We don't always have favour with all people, as it says here. But what doesn't change for the time and the generations and the seasons and the years is devotion to the apostles' teaching in the pages of our New Testament and community built on the confession of Jesus Christ. So what I want us to do is to look at our own hearts this morning and our own church, which you're all a part of, and to see the gospel creates this community, this culture. And as you read Acts 2, what's lacking? Because I don't want to make any promise that we've arrived, we've got there, or that we're perfect, or that we're even living this particular way. We're sinful people bumping around week in and week out. We're going to get it wrong. We're going to offend someone else. But I'd rather offend you in the church than anyone out there because God's grace is at work, you see? How can, we, how can knowing the gospel more deeply of who Jesus is and his exaltation, how can that change our culture? And it begins with each individual. Because the sad thing is, a church can unsay by what it does what it says up the front. And I don't want that to be our story. And I'm convinced that each of you don't want that to be the part of the church you're in either. Which means you should wrestle with the same imperatives that Peter said. There's three in this passage, in fact. Repent, baptise, be saved. And wrestle with the same priorities that Peter saw, that Luke wrote for us of the early church. This glued together, this devotion to people, prayer and communion. Peter wants them to see it's all about Jesus. And you and me... We should be all about Jesus too. And I do pray that we would be.